0: National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. There are 423 units in the national park
1: system, but a surprising number of people focus on only about two dozen parks. Last year, when about 300 million people visited the national park system, just 25 units, the Yellowstones, Grand Canyons, Zions, Blue Ridge Parkways, the Cape Cods, got 50% of the traffic. This is Kurt Repinchek, your host at National Parks Traveler. There are so many overlooked units in the National park System that are definitely worthy of a visit. They may not be your final destination, but they're certainly worth becoming a destination on your traveling itinerary. Recently I had the opportunity to tour four of these overlooked units. I started this audible road trip last week with my visit to Scott's Bluff National Monument in western Nebraska. Today's stop is at Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve in Kansas, an unusual park rich in both cultural and natural history. I'll be back in a minute with my walk through the tall grass with Ranger Eric Patterson.
0: Interior Federal Credit Union supports its members with some of the best rates in the country. Check out their new certificate rates and competitive loan rates at interiorfcu.org. Set your money aside for a specific period of time and maximize your earnings with terms up to 60 months and a minimum opening deposit of $500. Bump-up certificates are also available to increase your rate once during the certificate's term. Ready to start saving? Apply at interiorfcu.org. Since 1986, national park visitors have turned to the best-selling guidebook Passport to Your National Parks to collect fun ink stamps from each of their explorations. Just take your passport book to any National Park Visitor Center or park store and get your free ink stamp with the date and location of your visit. Personalize your passport even more by adding stickers, logging your favorite hiking trails, and mapping your next adventure. You can also show off your love for our national parks with passport-themed apparel and accessories. Best of all, 100% of proceeds from the Passport program support your national parks. Stamp your passport as you capture stories, preserve memories, and discover America's natural and historical treasures. We all aspire to leave a legacy of good, right? One way or the other, our parks and public lands are all of our legacies. Join Wild Tributes for the Parks community with apparel that pays tribute to where legacy roams. Together, we can and will make a difference for the parks. Join us at wildtribute.com. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That is why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. All right, Kurt
1: Repencheck at Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve with Ranger Eric Patterson, and we're going to take a walk on the Southwind Trail and try and get a little understanding of what exactly the Tallgrass Prairie is and what there is to see here at the preserve. So Eric, why don't we take a take a walk down this trail, and you can tell me a little bit about the the tall grass prairie, the maybe a little bit of history of the preserve, and and what people can find here.
2: All right, all right. Thank you, thank you for uh, taking the time to uh, find us out here. Uh, anyone could find Yellowstone in Yosemite, and I highly recommend it. But it in my head, it takes a true believer to find your way to. Uh, A place like this in the middle of Kansas which for many people is just something you drive through on your way to a Yellowstone or a Yosemite or a Rocky Mountain but uh but we have things uh, things to see and do here um, that are perhaps a little different than what uh, you may have uh, come to expect from a national park it's a very cerebral place we have no Grand Canyons or Grand Tetons here, but we have Grand Prairie. We have 10,894 acres of, uh, of uh, prairie land with maybe 30 to 40 miles of, of hikeable, walkable trails, all of which are available 24 hours a day. Camping though is not a uh, use that is accommodated out here, but there are places near the park that have camping availability a state park about eight miles away free camping
1: a state lake well i was kind of disappointed about that eric i mean you've got all this prairie beautiful tall grass prairie why not uh, carve out a little campground
2: well i suppose that would be uh, a question for our partner organization uh, the nature conservancy it's a unique arrangement between Private, nonprofit, and and uh, and public, federal land management agency, the Park Service. Um, I mean, eleven thousand acres, rounded up, seventeen square miles, does sound like a large area. But when you start uh, adding in the things you want to do on it, and the things people would associate with a national park. I mean all the recreational activities uh and all the natural resource management activities all of the land management experimentation and demonstration we're trying to do here um eleven thousand acres gets pretty small yeah and uh and I think initially when the park was envisioned it was seen as not necessarily a a one-stop shop for all of your tall grass prairie recreation needs. It was seen more as a as a catalyst, as a as a spark for perhaps others to take up the the, the torch and build upon the park's presence. Because uh, um, the Flint Hills themselves are some of the last remaining landscape level stands of tall grass prairie but the vast majority of those acres are not open to the public right right they uh, so so the park was seen as a way to kind of funnel that growing public interest into a place where i mean you don't have to know the landowner necessarily to will uh you just come on
1: out because in a sense you're the landowner it's a public place so well and as as you mentioned there's there's not a lot of tall grass prairie left in america is there no there is not
2: the 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 general consensus or the number that i present to folks is four percent of the original range so so now you're making me do math and that's that's (laughs) tough on a monday morning but uh 170 ish million acres is uh, thought to have been in North America. One of the three types of tall grass prairie. Tall grass, mixed grass, and short grass prairie make up the Great Plains. But 170 million of those are tall grass. And now that's down 0.4%. So... So, I guess you can do the math there. What's four percent of one hundred and seventy million? I think that's about six.
1: I'll, I'll let you do the math. Oh, I'm not go. very yeah. good at math.
2: That's why I got into this business. I'm, <laughs> I'm all about the talk. Yeah, and
1: and so. what's what's the difference between the tall grass prairie and a short grass prairie? I mean, it's it's late June here, um, coming up on July, and you know some of this vegetation might be a, a couple foot tall, but it's some people might say, well, that's not very tall. Uh, I think
2: it's primarily um, uh, weather slash climate. I know they're not the same, but uh, um, but it's a function of moisture primarily. I mean, the, the Rocky Mountains kind of kind of wring out the moisture moving from west to east, and as uh, as weather systems move to the east, they begin to rainfall again, and uh, you might see about ten inches of rainfall in the western high the high plains of western kansas which i think you gain i think i read in them in uh you gain one inch for every 20 miles west hmm. roughly so and that kind of works out because 10 inches on the colorado border 10 you get an inch every 20 miles by the time you reach uh the Flint Hills you're up to about 35 inches on the average and that's over 50 years that's a that's a long average I mean you can have periods of drought who You can have periods of moisture you can have everything in between it's a highly variable bit of rainfall out here but the but the ground is pretty good at absorbing moisture tall grass roots that's another thing a lot of people ask like I heard your roots go 20 feet into the ground. Is that true? And like, well, in some places where the where there's plenty of like you know soil material, you might get deep deep runs of roots. But out here, the rockiness of the terrain um, keeps the keeps the roots closer to the surface and spreads them out mm. along the top. So they all tangle together like um, steel and concrete and hold the mo- hold the hold the soil together and creates a sponge, a spongy mass that So so the roots are the rebar. The roots are the rebar. Yeah, there you go. Nice little bit of alliteration there. I like it. Um, But uh, the roots are the rebar, and uh, we can go the whole way around, or we can double back.
1: Oh, let's go the whole way. All right,
2: cool. Um, A little
1: exercise on Monday. That's it, yeah, get get our
2: steps in. That's good. But uh, so yeah, moisture is, one of the big driver and the relationship, I mean, that's the that's just one leg of the tall grass prairie. I like to say there are three more, like the legs of a stool or a table. You got moisture, you got fire, and then grazing, and then the fourth leg or the wild card is human activity, hmm. um, affecting. And, and so, in an ecosystem, when everything is balanced, you know, every, the table stays upright, but if one in a, in a three-legged environment, moisture fire grazing would kind of balance with one another, maintaining equilibrium in the ecosystem. If say it got dry, the plant life wouldn't grow as well. The grazing animals wouldn't uh, graze it as much. They'd go somewhere else, which would then rebalance when, the, when moisture returned, the animals would come back or say fire burned an area Um, That would draw the grazers in that sort of thing a lack of fire over a few years might discourage grazing so but then human activity kind of upsets things a little bit um, or adds adds an unpredictable Variable to the equation. Oh a fritillary a regal Fritillary the buffalo of the butterfly world right there. What's what's he perched on? Uh, butterfly milkweed, very very appropriate there.
1: Ooh, there nice bright go.
2: orange. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So monarchs love the butterfly milkweed as well. Um, one of the big kind of public uh, relations kind of efforts is to encourage um, butterfly friendly environments because um, you know monarchs are very uh, uh, are very kind of out there people know what monarchs are and they're getting more familiar with the amazing migration they do right and uh and what can happen when their main food source is uh kind of disappearing disappeared yeah i mean without the and and this is kind of it's not like they can uh, go to another part of the smorgasbord uh butterflies especially monarchs are Drawn to the butterfly milkweed. And, so uh,
1: this isn't a monarch. What, what is this?
2: A regal fritillary. Regal fritillary. It was featured on the ta- on the 2020 quarter. Oh really? Uh, for uh, Kansas, uh, the public lands uh, series that just wrapped up a couple years ago. Kansas Tallgrass was one of the one of the last uh, national parks of that series.
1: I mean, it's just beautiful the way it's just uh, he opens up his wings and you got that bright orange and the, the black on the inside and kind yeah. of a white spotted on the outside. Yeah, yeah, it's. Uh... Oh, cameras, cameras, where's my cameras? So, so, so you know, you guys have a nice maintained trail, so to speak. I mean, it looks like you cut the grass through the, the tall yeah. grass prairie here and you're talking about the, the three legged stool or the fourth leg if you bring in the human equation. Now, on the other side of the preserve you've got the bison correct yeah they don't they don't get over here into this tall grass prairie you don't cycle them through here to not through
2: here the they are there are there's a specific area of the park that is maintained for their needs it's a two square mile area of the park uh, 1100 of those acres are or a large, uh, a large pasture we call the windmill pasture. And then there's another 200 acres that was just recently made available to the bison to, um, to hopefully encourage them to kind of get a little more space and actually graze a little more toward the lower Fox Creek Schoolhouse where there's a parking area. And people might be able to uh, get a glimpse of of the buffalo or of the bison because their primary duty here is not necessarily you know to sing and dance and to be on display although that is um that is pretty cool when you can lay eyes on one of those giant beasts but their primary mission is to maintain the species to reproduce to be bison uh, uh, what's that to be bison to be bison yeah eat sleep and make a little bison that's a Sounds, uh, sounds pretty awesome. Good work if you can get it, I suppose. But uh, so they're maintained uh, a little deeper inside the park to kind of facilitate that. And uh, but the public can still hike through the buffalo pasture. There won't be anything between you and them. So, so good behavior on your part is uh, encouraged, recommended, because they, they are curious animals too and they will investigate your activity if it
1: doesn't uh,
2: match with what they've
1: come to expect. Well, I'm, I'm kind of curious too, because obviously we know in, in Yellowstone National Park, the visitors seem to think that the bison are tame, and some of those visitors get a little bit too close to the bison, which take exception and, and gore them and throw them in yeah. the air or whatnot. Do you ever have any incidents here with the, the bison and the human we, equation? We have,
2: uh, we have not, uh, Yeah, knock on wood, I mean, uh, um, the, uh, I guess we've had some, uh, close encounters. Some of our natural resource staff just out there doing their thing. Not in, not encouraging misbehavior, but just out there, um, on, uh, UTVs doing their research. Uh, maintaining proper distancing. But nature is, uh, is random. Full of probability that, uh, can't be, uh, predicted. And sometimes, uh, uh... The bison might uh, take uh, take offense or 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 start to kind of demonstrate their um, demonstrate that they yes we see you we're not exactly cool with what's going on but we'll keep you in our radar screen and uh, please uh, please mind the raised tail and the stomped feet and uh, go on about your business and we'll all be better for it so we try to uh educate the public with with uh please give them their oh.
1: get a little course of, of birds oh, yeah, watching us there they're listening
2: to some cowbirds i think or a couple of them anyway yeah. got a dick sisal there i think a couple of cowbirds i'm not sure what the ones to the left are i'm not a birder yeah, that's uh that that's why that's why they make uh, field guides. Yeah. yeah. So uh yeah, I'm not uh, quite a savant that way. I can spot the the usual suspects, but the the rare and elusives are that's why that's why I got the apps and Yeah, stuff, so yeah.
1: So again, this, this prairie right now is, is roughly maybe two foot or tall or so. I would uh, say so. And that come, come September how, how big we're we gonna uh, get?
2: Depending on where you're at, the access to moisture, the 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 um, the history of fire and grazing in an area, I would say tall grass hike could be, you know, strike zone, knees to shoulders. With some areas like along a river or a stream valley. You could easily see six feet high um, head head high but if you're on an outcrop or a high point ankle high is probably all you should expect um, and that's just the way that's just the way the prairie rolls. the tall grass prairie rolls it's very adaptive to whatever conditions are out there we're in a I mean in the midst of kind of droughts in the region um we've had some good rainfall lately a lot of it's run away we get a lot of flash flooding out here from time to time and so so the averages say you got this but then why am i still dry like well most of that rain most of that average rainfall just simply ran away ran into the creeks and ran out of the region so but the but the root systems of the prairie plants can retain moisture very, very well. And, and that helps sustain the landscape through the droughty times. And, and as cruel as it sounds, uh, such stress and strain and challenge actually in the, in the main and the long term serve to benefit the ecosystem as a whole because those plants and animals that can adapt to that sort of challenging landscape are the ones that will continue to grow. And those plants, animals, and yes, people who are unable to uh, accommodate the changes, well, they they disappear. Yeah. So, yes, like I said, nature is, uh, as we were saying earlier, it's, it's called an ecosystem and not an ego system. I mean, there <laughs> is no... Um, there is no accommodation made for human needs or desires nature is striving for balance and among the life forms whatever form that life takes is of course an open question and whether or not we humans will be part of that answer well you know that's a quite that's that's an ongoing debate yes yes so and it will be ongoing and it will be ongoing yeah it's a lot of a lot of kind of cultural reckoning going on and like how are we going to make our way upon this planet which is the only one close enough that's even (laughs) that's even the only one we know that can sustain our version of life as we know it yeah unless you want to live in a uh double wide trailer 90 100 million miles from home live in mars or something like that live an artificial landscape or whatever, so.
1: Now, before this became the Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve, um, it was a ranch or a farm?
2: It was a ranch. It's, uh, it began life in 1878 when the Stephen F. Jones and Louisa Jones family came to Kansas from Colorado with the expressed purpose to uh, to continue in their lives as uh, cattle operators they were he was about 52 when they arrived she was about 46 so right there you are telling a different story than than uh, the than the little house covered wagon kind of overland trail this was like the next generation kind of at the at the fulcrum the tipping point between the open range the quote-unquote wild west which probably wasn't as wild as hollywood made it out to be uh, and the more settled and stable and established way of life that is still the way of life out here today so 1878 the joneses came with money to spend and with knowledge and age and experience and how to spend it Spent $25,000 on the main house. Wow. Another fifteen dollars on the barn and outbuildings. You ever extrapolate
1: that to what it would have been cost today? Yeah, and you can go to Google, go
2: to your inflation calculator, and plump that up. I think the money they came with, $100,000, I think equates to $2 million today. And I think $25,000 is something like three quarters of a million. But of course, if if that if you had to rebuild that house with three quarters of a million, I don't think you'd get more than a couple of walls. No, it's a beautiful, um, beautiful house. Before you could get before you could get even close to what we have now. So So they came, they saw, they expanded, they acquired about seven thousand acres, which is we take that for granted. The buying and selling of land is a huge deal. But back then buying property, well that was that was a big deal Um, purchasing land the closure of the open range many many folks are kind of came out into the wild west the quote-unquote wild west to make a living on that open range Um, didn't require the purchase of land or really a lot of capital up front they just hook up with a with a cattle crew and then just do their thing But as uh, time went on and money became spent, um, as the business became more lucrative, um, and as railroads started to crisscross the countryside, especially the Atchison, the Topeka, and the Santa Fe, that really revolutionized the cattle business because no longer did you have to track A herd from somewhere in Texas up to Abilene or Wichita, Dodge City in Kansas, a dangerous trek, you could just stick them on a railroad car and ship them to market. Right. And that's what they were doing before they got to Kansas. They were established a, a large ranch near La Junta, Colorado along the Santa Fe Trail, which rapidly became the Santa Fe Railroad, and all of a sudden... They could now ship their cattle to markets in Kansas City, Omaha, Chicago. And then finally, they came to the realization that, well, why don't we just build a ranch in that big green swath there in Kansas um, and just raise them in in the state itself because quarantine laws were starting to take effect that were affecting the importation of cattle. Tick. (laughs) <laughs> the um so just raise them in state and you won't have to worry about those quarantine laws so and the flint hills were tailor made for grazing animals lots and lots of grass of course that grass was grazed by buffalo bison which were by 1872 totally wiped out of the state really there were no wild bison by the early 1870s which Roughly coincides with the other dark thread that runs through our red, white, and blue, and that is the the wholesale kind of transformation and removal of the indigenous peoples of the area, the Pawnee, the Osage, the Wichita, and the Kansas, for whom our state gets its name in one of the more kind of ironic uh, bits of history the Kansas. I mean the name the state is named for the Kansas. but 11 years after the state was established the Kansas were more or less removed from it. Wow. They were hemmed in to reservation lands in and around Council Grove, Kansas and little by little those lands got whittled away until by the early 1870s the the Kaw Agency, K-A-W, if I understand my timelines correct, was open to all settlement, which means the Kansas no longer had a home specific to them in Kansas. So, but they were, I guess, offered—I don't know—kind of in a very Corleone sort of way—offered um, space. Down in Indian territory, now, of course, called Oklahoma, yeah. right next to the Osage nation, um, about, and which, between the two of them, they they have the last bits of the the Flint Hills as they exist in Oklahoma, where they're called the Osage Hills.
1: So well, let's back up to the Joneses a little bit. Sure. How, how many cattle did they run here at the height of their empire? Uh,
2: let's see. Oh man, you almost stumped the chump here. I think uh, I think maybe in the neighborhood of a thousand, twelve hundred. I mean, they weren't like this wasn't like a feedlot of a half a million. Yeah. This was entirely self-sustaining on those acres. So thirty miles of limestone fence was constructed to contain and separate those acres into pastures and then they would also raise in the bottom lands, like the crops the the plant life that a ranch would need the the corn the beans the what have you the they had orchards there uh, so uh, down in the bottom land immediately a, across from the the ranch complex so uh so it and they had water hence the name of the the original name of the ranch spring hill farm and stock ranch a spring was channeled into a cistern which provided ample water for use within the house and provided the the location i mean the the location of the house in pro- in close proximity to that spring. So so they, they had their water needs nailed down, they had their crop growing needs nailed down, they had the upland cattle grazing needs nailed down. Not something every young family in a covered wagon could pull off. Sounds like a sweet deal. Sweet deal, it was a, uh, again, kind of a recognition of The kind of recognition of of kind of yes, there's opportunities here. We should take advantage of them. But again, the flip side always must be acknowledged. The cost of that freedom was not borne entirely by the Joneses. Yeah, that the phrase "freedom isn't free" is comes into play especially this week the yeah they came here after the bison had been removed after pretty much all the indigenous land uh, was divided up so so they came about five six years after all that happened so something to at least acknowledge uh, at the very least yeah yeah
1: (laughs) So, the, uh, the prairie, the tall grass prairie that uh, the Park Service um, maintains, preserves, was basically the Jones cattle um, grazing all that and grazed it down?
2: Uh, correct, yeah, the Joneses uh, grazed 7,000 of, of the park's acres, and then the remaining acres were belonged to his southern neighbor, uh, uh, a family by the name of uh, Lamp Tree, Barney and Bridget, Lantry, they were involved in the other big business in Chase County, which is limestone quarrying. So, so the two main natural resources of, of Chase County are the grass and, and what's below it. I guess you could boil it, yeah, uh, the rock, the limestone. Um, so today's bound, ban- and then in 1888, 10 years after arriving in the state, Stephen and Louisa finally sell the ranch to their southern neighbor, the Lantries.
1: Didn't stick around for long.
2: Didn't stay. well, the, and, and, uh, yeah, the history, I mean, there, it, it's great, to, it's kind of great fun to speculate. I mean, a lack of, don't let a lack of facts get in the way of a good story. And, never, uh, never. Never. The, um, and, and, I mean, I make the joke, they weren't, uh, posting their every move to Instagram or Facebook (laughs) or even diaries or letters. I mean, the 19th century social media has, if they were writing the letters, they haven't been found. Hmm. But but we do know by 1888, he was in his mid-60s. His wife was right behind him. Their young daughter, the fifth of five children, had finished her eighth grade um, education at the Lower Fox Creek Schoolhouse and had... And so maybe all of those things combined um, inspired them to move to Kansas City Hmm. in 1886. Uh, And then two years later, 88, they sell the ranch. Um, There were other economic uh, uh, winds blowing at that time. Weather was a factor. Um, I believe there were blizzards in 86, 87, 88 that affected cattle cattle life quite significantly, and then the, the inevitable patterns of supply and demand economics were kicking in by the late 1880s and 90s, and
1: there was a lot of shakeout
2: in and a lot of speculation, which led to economic instabilities.
1: Well, j- just as a, a short interlude, I think it was uh, one of those blizzards that convinced uh, Charles Buffalo Jones that uh, maybe cattle weren't the best uh, well, that, uh, I mean, they probably,
2: uh, yeah, they saw that. I mean, cattle aren't even native to the Western Hemisphere. So they are, they are imports themselves, Spanish imports, in fact. So, uh, and they brought with them all of their Spanish European habits and, and physiologies and such, and they're transplanted to a whole nother continent um, with similar, but not identical. Uh, And then over the years, you know, domestication does kind of take out a lot of that survivability. Yeah. Which bison still more or less maintain um, some of those habits and some of those physiologies. I mean, and being the native grazer, they've they've got a lot of those things, a lot of that hardwired in. A lot of the hardware and the wetware is right there, tailor-made for this kind of environment. So whether or not there can be some kind of hybrid that can uh, combine the best of both. I think efforts in the late 1800s managed to combine the worst of both and uh, managed to kind of muddy the genome a little bit with cattle genetics.
1: Uh, And Buffalo Jones was one of the forerunners of that uh, hybridization experiment that went awry. And I think some of the um, bison on the north rim of the Grand Canyon today contains some of those cattle uh, right. genes, and, and some of them actually exhibit some cattle appearances cattle that they appear- used to. Yeah, I've I, seen I, some pretty bizarre pictures.
2: I know. I was about to say, I think I remember seeing a picture, and I'm like, man, that is Franken-cow right there. It looked <laughs> like it was built from spare parts from a slaughterhouse floor or something. Uh,
1: but coming forward, you've got the, the bison on the preserve that the, the TNC, Nature Conservancy, oh. maintains, and that is... Intended to preserve pure bison, pure genet- genetics, if or, possible.
2: If possible, yeah, and of course, genetic testing and uh, is getting more and more uh, precise, and so perhaps they'll find other, pick out other islands of genetic purity out there. Sounds kind of creepy when you say it that way, but uh, um, but yeah, these bison are kind of uh, super cool, super important to that whole maintenance species maintenance uh, project that dates back well into the late 19th century with, with efforts by, by William T. Hornaday, Theodore Roosevelt and other like-minded folks who had not only the bully pulpit, the social status, but they had the pockets that were deep enough to kind of begin to acquire some bison where they could still be found. They let's, were, let's not forget Charles Goodnight. There you go, Charles Goodnight. Yeah, they were. Uh, there, there were people recognizing finally that, well, maybe human activity, we've got the whole subdue and dominate thing down pretty well. Maybe <laughs> we need to uh, exercise some restraint and stewardship. Far more uh, difficult uh, habits to cultivate. So, but they were uh, making the effort and. Fortunately, they were close enough to the levers of power that they could kind of begin to move the needle far more than any than the other Joe Blow from Kokomo. But, uh, but they were able to uh, sequester some bison at the, in, uh, at the Bronx Zoo in New York City, waiting for an occasion to come up sometime in a distant future, unpredictable, where these bison could be reintroduced sounds pretty simple right Uh, to our eyes and ears it probably we hear stuff like that every day but back then that was a fairly radical notion of animal reintroduction restoration um, the beginnings of the some of the first stirrings of the of of the modern environmental um, activist activism movement um, awareness that all life is affected by all other life in some fashion. So, so about 1907, you might want to correct me on that. When Wind Cave National Park was established, those bison were
1: transferred. Well, and what's really interesting, you have to wonder. I mean, Hornaday was good friends with President Roosevelt, and he basically convinced Roosevelt to get behind the bison movement. And, and Hornaday said, "Here's the deal: you give us the land, we'll give you the bison." And so that's that. Yeah. That first. Uh, well, so, actually, I think the first one went out to Wichita, um, L- Wichita Mountain National Wildlife Oklahoma Refuge,
2: or what became Oklahoma. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, then the, uh-huh. the Wind well, Cave. Um, yeah, that's uh, that. There's there's politics for you. I mean, and that's not to uh, denigrate politics. I mean, people combining together for a shared purpose. Uh, that's, I guess, that's the ideal of politics, but. When it works, out. the execution thereof can be a bit uh, thorny, but I, I guess they were at least trying. Uh, so uh, and recognizing that one life form's activities would ripple out and affect the activities of other ones. So, so yeah. So those bison came to Wind Cave, and then fast forward about hundred years to 2009 the park received its first bison 13 tall grass prairie tall grass prairie received its bison from wind cave as kind of an extension of that long running uh restoration species maintenance efforts uh so it's kind of cool that uh little old kansas land of dorothy toto and tornadoes yes i've heard the jokes um can also uh be a be a place where there's some, like, cutting-edge uh, species protection, preservation going on. And, and uh, having a, an isolated herd like this, if some sort of tragedy should befall the Wind Cave herd, it gets sick, uh, a pandemic, Paris the thought, um, and that herd should be uh, injured in some way the animals here at Tallgrass could be utilized kind of as a as a storehouse of uh, genetic information. So to help rebuild
1: a, a sickened herd or something like that. So. so you zoom out a little bit and you know, it's thought that, oh, at the beginning of the 19th century, estimates of 50, 60, maybe 70 million bison yeah, yeah. were on the landscape. And we probably had that Hundred and forty million acres of tall grass prairie, and now you zoom forward to the 21st century, and there might be five hundred thousand bison there you go. That's, that's in North Clark, America. That's
2: number. That the the number I throw out there, four or five hundred thousand. Yeah. yeah.
1: And very small number of those are in conservation there herds, you go. Oh, man, like the one here. Uh,
2: we are we are on the same page. Yeah. The like yeah, very small. Five percent. Would that be a uh, a uh, uh, could I get away with that? Five percent in conservation care, the other 95 in not conservation care. Meat, meat production. Meat production. There you go. That's that's what I tell folks, and they give me a bit of a sour look, and I'm like, yeah, it, it's uh, it's no fun getting out of bed in the morning, is it? You get <laughs> you get exposed to all these kind of uncomfortable facts, and uh, you may like. You may want to go back home and crawl under your bed if you want to uh,
1: avoid all of this. Uh. You know what's interesting is, is you go back to the administration of I think President George W. Bush, and um, you know Interior Secretary Kempthorne launched the, uh, the Bison Initiative in okay. the Interior Department and in the Park Service, and you I think that was in 2007 or so, 2006. Right. And you come forward to today, and you know they're they're studying their genetics and they're coming up with a map and trying to figure out where else can we put conservation herds on the public lands in the West.
2: Yeah, yeah, good, uh, yeah, good luck. Um, the uh, I mean it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, bison are not uh, not dachshunds, you know. They're not <laughs> uh, um, they're not easily handled animals, uh, and not every acre in the West is suitable, you no. know. Um, so, so yeah, it's a, it's a real challenge finding, um, finding landscape that can indeed be, um, cause owning is the easy part. I mean, acquiring is the easy part. Owning is the tricky part. I mean, yeah, it's many people have learned that buying a bison is far different than maintaining it on your one acre farm, uh, they, they tend to bust out of things when they get too jammed up. And, <laughs> and then you get a knock on the door from the local sheriff saying, please do
1: something with your animal or we will. Yeah, yeah. So if you can't make it out to Yellowstone National Park or Grand Teton and you want to see some bison, come over to Tallgrass yeah. Prairie.
2: Come over to Tallgrass Prairie. It, they will require, it will require some work. A little exercise. A little exercise. Uh, the herd is maintained the larger part of that pasture is about a half a mile from the visitor center complex, so. Half a mile walk? Half a mile walk to enter the pasture, and then you're kinda at the, you're, you're living on their time and place. So they may in fact show up, be grazing right at the front door, uh, right at the front gate, and you can check off the bison box right away. Or they might make you work for it a little more, and, or, and they might make you work for it, and then you not see them at all.
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: That is, again, getting out of bed can be quite inconvenient sometimes.
1: But at the same time, I mean, what is it, roughly two square miles, at your Two heard? square miles, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a...
2: And some of that acreage, about 200 of it, again, was, was opened up near a parking area by the Lower Fox Creek Schoolhouse, which is only a miles walk or drive from the visitor center complex. So if everything aligns just so, you might be able to drive to the schoolhouse and catch a glimpse of some brown dots on the horizon with broad shoulders. And boom, you have, you've seen the bison. Yeah.
1: Well, but it just goes to show you that you don't need a large swath of land to maintain a conservation herd of bison. No, no, yeah, you don't need uh, tens of thousands,
2: hundreds of thousands of acres. If if the numbers of bison are kept small enough and the area is kept large enough, the you can maintain a calm and predictable environment. And, and as all animals are, even humans, we are reflections of our... Environment, more or less, and for those bison, especially, if uh, if that environment was cramped and uh, constant irritation from vehicles, um, overcrowded with uh, overcrowded with buffalo, what have you, the um, yeah, their behavior could get a little unpredictable, and and all you got to do is go to YouTube. Bison at Yellowstone, and boom—you could probably find all sorts of videos to prove that point. Yeah. But uh, but out here, I think these bison have um, become accustomed to their environment and what happens within it, up to a point. I mean, we still tell people, please maintain. I mean, if the if we get anything out of this pandemic, it'll be distancing. Distance <laughs> is good. Distance is good. Um, whether you're a teeny tiny coronavirus or a 2,000-pound um, uh, rutting bull bison, um, keep your distance. It's, it's. Uh, we we tend to say. I think they say at Yellowstone 25 yards, but we uh, we say 100. On the um, safe side. On the safe side. That's right. But again, nobody's. All I have is a is a sternly wagged finger. Um, I have no other juice on me to uh, make the point. So. So please heed uh, heed the heed the words. Make, keep a distance. Give them room. Use a zoom. Um, that sort of thing. Let, let them do what you came to see them do. Yeah. You know, it's eat, sleep, and do their do
1: their bison thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, Eric, thanks so much for the walking tour to uh, Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve. It's it's a fascinating place. Uh, I guess I'm gonna have to come back in the fall when the the tall grass is taller and, and maybe still in bloom. Please do, yeah. I mean, there'll be some
2: flowers. Uh, Generally, springtime is a good time to see shorter plant life because the grasses haven't really awakened yet. But then July and August, uh, the tables turn. The the shorter forbs and flowers get overshadowed by the taller uh, grassy plant life. And then by September, um, usually the grasses have become far more identifiable right now it's just anonymous blades so you need like a doctorate in biology a doctorate in botany and a magnifying glass to tell one species from another almost but yeah. uh but yeah they will uh they'll get taller out here i would say waist high along the Southwood trail um so uh yeah it's a it's a good place to rewind to kind of let your mind uh kind of scramble around a little bit relax uh relax a bit um it's it's a place to put your wellness money where your mouth is you've people are saying i need to get away from it all i need to relax i need to turn off my phone this is where you do it yeah yeah great
1: place great place all right well thanks again eric you're most welcome thank you for coming that's our show for this week we hope you enjoyed it in the coming weeks, I'll take you to Homestead National Historical Park in southeastern Nebraska and Fort Larned National Historic Site in west central Kansas. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rebencheck. See you in the parks.
0: The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, Protect wildlife and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix the depth of experience in the parks and land space with the breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to PetreroGroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O, group.com. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org.